This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Since the province opened up second doses of COVID-19 vaccine for people 80 and over this week, we've seen a wide gap in the ease of access among the different regions of the province where the 80-plus crowd got their first shot. The best scenario we've heard at Fight Back, some GTA hospitals are proactively reaching out to people and moving up their second appointment without those individuals having to ask. At the same time, Health Minister Christine Elliott said people would have to make their second dose bookings on their own. On Wednesday, Libby Snymer was joined by Dr. Dirk Heyer, Ontario's chief coroner and coordinator of the provincial outbreak response totally recognize and acknowledge the frustration that some people are feeling. Uh, when we're, we're basing our delivery of vaccine on the supply that's available, and in some jurisdictions, the supply wasn't as plentiful as it was in others. And so in areas such as the areas that have hotspots, they had more supply and were able to deliver vaccine to a greater percentage of their populations, whereas others aren't as, uh, haven't moved as quickly because of the supply that they have. Clearly, there's a difference across the province. But what we needed to do provincially was balance off and make sure that we continued to deliver the vaccines as they arrived. And so you have a balance between the first and the second doses. And some some places who haven't uh, had the same coverage of first doses will be at a different stage with their second doses. We had one caller who actually didn't have to wait that long on the phone, but at the end of, of the appointment got an appointment that was one day earlier than, than the original one in July. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, we, we certainly know that that is going to be the issue based upon um, this is eligibility, as you talked about early, and earlier in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the conversation. And so there are some that won't be moved significantly forward in this particular age group because we still have a fair number of first doses to do. And so uh, we, we recognize that there won't necessarily be as quick move or as much of a movement as we continue forward through the next number of months that, that interval will shorten um, as, uh, as things come to uh, a closer time frame to book and uh, between the time when they uh, receive their dose. So that means if if people over 80 are having to wait, uh, then people who are younger are definitely going to have to wait. No, as we continue to, uh, they're going to have to wait to to do their eligibility. But what will happen is um, because we have increasing and continually increasing supply that's coming over the summer and less first doses that need to occur, more second doses will be able to be done. So right now what's happening is we have both first and second doses happening together with a significant number of first doses still happening. So there's less volume 
available for the second doses, whereas more volume will be available for second doses as we go through the summer. I want to read another email because I'm wondering if this particular problem is solved or about to be solved now that mixing of the doses is okay. Is my husband tried to book his second shot of Moderna today, and after spending an hour and a half waiting on the phone, they told him Moderna wasn't available in Niagara and he would have to go to Toronto. How do they expect seniors to go to Toronto? We have no choice but to wait for our regularly scheduled appointments in July. Is there a chance now that uh, he can take the Pfizer, that there's Pfizer available in Niagara? What NACI talked about yesterday, which is the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, is they believe that if there's not, uh, that it's best to have the same um, MR, both, both mRNA vaccines, so Moderna and Moderna, Pfizer and Pfizer, if available. But if not, uh, interchanging those, they felt, was a safe alternative. Uh, one of the things that we've had is a, a decreased supply of Moderna coming in. Um, hopefully that will change uh, over the next few weeks, and that will make greater availability of Moderna clinics um, uh, around. But, but yes, that's one of the things we're contemplating is providing that ability for booking um, somebody who had Moderna first and then getting Pfizer second. But we have to ensure that we have the, 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 the booking process and the, um, the, the tracking process within the software to allow that because clearly early on, everything was keep the same vaccine. So we set a system in place to make sure that people were getting the same vaccine so there wasn't um, a potential safety issue if they got different ones. So we have to revise that and look at that to see how can we do that most effectively. Dr. Dirk Heyer, Ontario's Chief Coroner and Coordinator of the Provincial Outbreak Response. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. More now on mixing doses of COVID vaccines, which was approved this past week by Health Canada and the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. People who received AstraZeneca for their first dose now have three options for their second shot, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, or Moderna. And those who received Pfizer as a first dose may receive either Pfizer or Moderna for their second dose and vice versa. Study results from the United Kingdom suggest short-term side effects like fever and fatigue may be more pronounced during mixing and matching. For more on this change to the COVID vaccine rollout, Libby was joined by epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Susie Hota, medical director of infection prevention and control at the University Health Network. Well, certainly. So the, the, the limited information we have to date about, um, about these kinds of side effects and what happens when you do interchange different types of vaccines do suggest that all the side effects that are commonly seen are seen that much more commonly when you do the mixing compared to if you got the same vaccine twice for each dose or uh, once for each dose. Um, so I expect that that's going to be what we'll see if people move forward with it. But that said, there aren't increased safety, safety signals. So um, there weren't hospitalizations or serious adverse events in three studies that actually looked at the safety and side effect profile of those that had the mixing and matching. So uh, that would occur across the board with different age groups. Um, in these studies, they tended to be younger people that were recruited. So the median ages were in the 30s or 40s. Um, but I do think that across the board, 
probably there will be more side effects if, if people started with AstraZeneca and went ahead and got Pfizer or Moderna as a second dose. Dr. Sly, I mean, there's there's a feeling out there that that older people who are in the community and who have the least draw on the healthcare system, you know, that they have been to some extent forgotten. Well, they it, it, when the thing started, if you remember, you know, a year and uh, what a year and a quarter ago, almost. Uh, they were the focus of uh, of all of the concern. That was where the infections were taking place. That was where the deaths were increasing. Uh, and they've they've yes they've uh, from from the point of view of uh, of, uh, of incidents they have uh, we, we, the focus has moved from them to vastly younger ages now. But in terms of the vaccines, I'm one of those older people as well. Uh, so I'm I'm. It, I'm concerned that uh, that that we follow through with those uh, second doses as well. That, that's an important issue, especially with the new variant coming along, the uh, the six one seven. It seems that the one dose is really not enough to uh, to to be confident. Uh, the six one seven is is the one that originated in India, correct? That's correct. So there's uh, three versions of it, but it's the B one six one seven two. That's the one that uh, we're worried about. I read this disturbing report that there is a new variant, and I think it's this one, which can be worse and and is more transmissible. Uh, Dr. Hoda, what can you tell me about that? Yes, so that report uh, that you're referring to, I believe, is is referring to the B one six one seven point two, and um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about how uh, it's really been the dominant one of the dominant uh, lineages that and sublineages of. Uh, the virus that has been circulating in India, and we all know just how dramatic, um, you know, the effects have been in that country. But it's also been introduced into the UK, and it's all it's taking over, um, I guess, uh, past other variants. So it's starting to replace the previous uh, predominant variant, which was the B117, uh, and become more, uh, you know, it's it's being found more more often. And it, there's some suggestion that it's more transmissible than even B117, which, as you may recall, was more transmissible than the earlier variants that started off the pandemic. So the the implication there is it spreads more easily. But the other piece of information that's really interesting is um, there is one uh, not yet peer-reviewed study, so it's still being reviewed, um, but it's been submitted and it's available that shows that in the UK, it looks like one dose of a vaccine, whether it be Pfizer or AstraZeneca, which are the two that were involved, provide less protection when it comes to this particular variant. Only about 30 to 35 percent of people will actually have an effective immune response after one dose. And that is dramatically increased after the second dose. So I think it just shows how important it is for us to get those second doses out really quickly. Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, and epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, Professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. We learned later in the week, Ontario residents who received AstraZeneca as a first dose may book their second dose for 12 weeks later directly with the pharmacy if they want a second shot of AstraZeneca and through the Ontario booking portal as of tomorrow if they want Pfizer or Moderna as a second shot. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, the horrific finding in Kamloops 
and what it means for Canada's history with Indigenous peoples. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are in the midst of a national reckoning following the discovery of a mass grave of 215 Indigenous children on the grounds of a former residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. It is a shocking finding, but not necessarily unexpected, since we've known that between 4,000 and 6,000 children died in residential schools. There is a national call to look for other mass graves and to identify the children buried. On Wednesday, Libby Snymer was joined by a panel of experts to discuss this issue of national significance and importance. Santi Smith is the founding and managing artistic director of Kahawi Dance Theatre. Dr. Veldon Coburn is chancellor of McMaster University. And Kat Krieger is an Indigenous elder, traditional teacher, and knowledge keeper. My reactions to this discovery, well, the... I guess there's some obvious components of that. One was, um, in a sense, shock, but also that shock has been ongoing for a long time uh, through many similar uh, occurrences or recognitions or discoveries. The idea that something like this can, did, not can, but did exist and was perpetuated by the parties responsible. And it's or to manifest words to describe that is almost impossible. Dr. Coburn, when these children were taken to residential schools, was all contact with their families cut off? It was almost entirely restricted. Um, so, especially from the Kamloops Indian Residential School, that was particularly harsh and aggressive, uh, almost to the point of antagonism towards the parents, because there are um, some documents that circulate from, say, the um, Indian agent from the communities that they were sent from, requesting that the children could be given permission to go home for, say, Christmas. And the correspondence between the officials at the school and back to the community via, I guess, what would be the state steward, because uh, even the parents were considered children under the law. They were wards of the state. They were legal wards themselves without the rights to exercise that over their own children would have uh, denied them the sort of standing and agency required to have any say over the means and ends of their life. It's, um, it's something unfathomable today. Santi Smith, my understanding is that the children at these schools were also not necessarily allowed to talk to each other, to, to their siblings. The siblings were not allowed to connect. Uh, there was no uh, physical touch of an, in a loving way. For a lot of them, it's been a long healing journey, and they can continue to still do that healing work today and connecting with other survivors. And then for the news to come out, this grief that Kat is talking about, everybody has holds that in, in a way, and especially because they weren't um, offered uh, a proper burial ceremony. And that's a really important aspect of most uh, cultural life for Indigenous nations. 
Kat Krieger, uh, there is a call to look for other terrible mass graves like this. How does that have to be done in a way that respects traditions? My, one of my first thoughts, actually, when I heard about this, it's, it's like finding the location of a mass serial killer. And I think as these places are discovered, then there, there should be Indigenous people there. There should be people uh, from the community you know, um, as in many uh, sites now, monitoring what is going on and giving direction to how to proceed. It's, and again, I can't speak pan-Indigenous. It's, it's a big country. There's many, many different nations out there that do things different ways. Um, but certainly informed um, in every possible step, in every way, involved in every possible step, in every way, and taking the appropriate as, as seen fit by those people, um, whatever cultural um, ceremony, if you would, you know, when, when we, you know, when a site's discovered where there has been a serial killing, um, there is a massive reaction. Um, anything associated with that is investigated. Any records or details are um, sourced, you know, either through police or whatever means. The idea that the church has blocked this access. So one of the things is transparency. And most certainly, the church should be transparent in every single possible record, note, notation, or anything they have to offer to to assist in this. Kat Krieger, an Indigenous elder, traditional teacher, and knowledge keeper. Santi Smith, founding and managing artistic director of Kahawi Dance Theatre. And Dr. Veldon Coburn, Chancellor of McMaster University. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Federal Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole and his MPs are calling for an investigation into connections between the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg and a lab in China. They want the Public Health Agency of Canada to release all documentation related to the matter. You may recall back in 2019, some Chinese medical staff were escorted out of the Canadian lab and had their contracts terminated a short time after it was found that they had shipped virus substances to China's Wuhan Institute of Virology. Joining Libby for a discussion on this Thursday, Dr. Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs, Carleton University, and Conservative Foreign Affairs Critic, MP Michael Chong. President Biden indicated that there are two likely theories as to how this whole global pandemic started. Uh, If it turns out that the U.S. government concludes that it likely came out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology in an accident, then the role the Canadian government's lab in Winnipeg played in helping uh, set up that lab in Wuhan, in helping collaborate with that lab in Wuhan, in helping train scientists and technicians there becomes a really important question. And that's why we are asking why these two Canadian government scientists were fired from Winnipeg and asking whether or not the government uh, will be providing uh, assistance to U.S. investigators as they try to trace the source of this coronavirus. Do you anticipate any success in trying to get this information? Earlier this year, uh, the Special Committee on Canada-China Relations issued two orders to the government uh, to produce these documents. The government has ignored both of those orders. And yesterday, we took the matter to the House of Commons as a whole, and we were successful in having uh, an order of the House adopted 
to put the full force and weight of the House of Commons behind the order, uh, demanding that the government produce these documents by the end of this week. So we're anticipating uh, and hoping that they will comply with this order, seeing that it has the full weight of the House of Commons behind it. And, uh, you know, when we get the documents, we're going to be responsible uh, in using them. We've put in place provisions to ensure that uh, no information injurious to national security or any details related to an ongoing criminal investigation are made public. Okay, we are going to continue this conversation with an expert in security and international affairs, Dr. Stephanie Carvin. Where are we at this? It's starting to look more and more plausible, if not likely. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is why it's good that we are actually going to have, like, you know, intelligence agencies kind of go back and look at what happened. I think, you know, when you have events like this, uh, you know, we have seen a number of conspiracy theories about it. You know, we've seen that, you know, ideas kind of promulgated by, you know, countries like Russia, that coronavirus uh, is caused by 5G and all these other kinds of things. So I think trying to have an explanation into this is important. Unfortunately, uh, this is where the World Health Organization has let us let us down. They have tried to conduct some investigations, but at the same time, they were clearly not really willing to criticize China. China, of course, has not been particularly transparent about this. Uh, they really waited a long time in order to grant uh, the World Health Organization, the committee that was established to try and get to the bottom of all, all this, any access whatsoever. So, what we're going to have now is uh, the U.S. intelligence apparatus, which is very, very large, much larger than Canada, now can do some kind of study into what happened, which, again, I think is important. This thing has disrupted us. It's going to disrupt us for a full 18 months, and it's been hard on everybody. So having some answers to this, I do think, is important. But it, it is far from certain that the, you know, there'll be any kind of definite conclusion. Libby Snymer's conversation on Thursday with Dr. Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs, Carleton University, and Conservative Foreign Affairs critic, MP Michael Chong. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Olive in Niagara has been trying to book a second dose of COVID vaccine with no luck. I live in Niagara area and I went on the telephone and waited for an hour and a half, which didn't matter. Finally got to talk to somebody and I got the same reply, nothing available. Uh, call again at a different time. I've called three times the same, same answer, nothing available. Madeline in Peterborough called about the appointment she was offered for a second dose of COVID vaccine. I've gone online four times. I'm going to be 83 tomorrow. And I've gone online four times to book an appointment for uh, the early vaccine. And the closest uh, location for me is the Scarborough Town Centre. Yeah, and presumably it's hard for you to get there. Definitely. 
I mean, I'm 83 years old, you know. Um, I, I just don't understand. And, uh, you know, I have to admit, though, the Ontario Health has just been fantastic the way they've handled this. My first shot, I was so impressed with uh, the way it was handled. But now, as I said, I can't go to the Scar- Scarborough Town Centre. Richard in Hamilton phoned with good news on his second shot of COVID vaccine. Last night at 8 o'clock, my wife went on the computer. Half an hour later, I got it moved from July 13 up to June 9 in Hamilton. Perfect. That's fantastic news. And uh, it's with the same one I had the first time. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Elsie in Innismore, who phoned about her second dose booking and how the system is not working for those who don't have access to transportation. On Monday, I got on uh, online at about 8 o'clock and Uh, tried to book an appointment for my husband, who is 88. And the first thing they came up was Lindsay. And I looked at it and I said, oh, well, where's the Peterborough site? So I backed up one screen and put Peterborough in again. And when it came up, Lindsay was not there. The next closest was um, Markham, Scarborough, or Aurelia. So I clued in that these are the only available appointments that there are. And we managed to book into Markham today at three o'clock. Good for you. How are you getting there? Uh, Well, we're driving and it's about an hour and 15 minutes. But I said to my husband, what do the people do that can't get in their car and drive an hour and a half to get their second shot? That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.